2: a super offer for Super Bowl 58, DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered. New customers can bet on the big game and turn 5 bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. Now me, I'm big on quarterback bets. So, Patrick Mahomes, I'm all in on a whole bunch of different bets with him. Brock Purdy, I'm all in on a whole bunch of different bets with him. And if there's any Taylor Swift bets that are available, I'm all in on them as well. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code MANIX. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58 with code MANIX. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPENY. a little bit early this week because I want to talk about the 168-pound division because while when we look at the best divisions in boxing, we often discuss welterweight, we discuss now junior welterweight because there are some really big names in those weight classes. After watching the events of this past week, uh, I think you can make an argument that the super middleweight division is... The deepest one in boxing. Certainly among the deepest ones in all of boxing. With some really intriguing matchups that could be made to determine who is the king of that division. To talk about that, I want to bring in the guy that is the king of talking about all divisions. From 105 to 222 plus or whatever it is above Bridget Wade. Corey Erdman, senior writer, BoxingScene.com. Broadcaster, ESPN and DAZN. He actually called... Super middleweight fight headlined by Eric Bazinian. And I know Corey is deeply familiar with his Canadian brother, Christian Mabili, who is uh, suddenly a player in 168 pound division. So Corey, I figured this conversation would be right in your wheelhouse.
3: Uh, roughly, I mean, my wheelhouse is really 105 or Bridger weight, but I can I can settle in around 168 as well. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yeah. I'm telling you,
2: it, it was an opportunity missed for us at the zone this week, and not having you as a special <laughs> contributor to Oscar <laughs> Collazo's 105 pound uh, title defense, you would have had a lot of interesting knockout CP Freshmart uh, potential matchup notes uh for that fight so
3: yeah I, I don't know how many potential matchups there are for knockout cp fresh unless you're willing to go to thailand and even if you do the fight still might not happen uh you know sorry to eric rosa for uh bringing up old wounds um but going back to what you're saying chris i mean like if you extend that time period to about 14 days or so you include christian and billy and eric bazinian and Jaime munguia I mean, this is a it was an exciting two weeks for 168 pounds, and it reinforces this as being one of the most interesting divisions in the sport. And and if you look at just sheer young talent, Chris, if we're using the Ring Magazine rankings, there are eight young undefeated super middleweights in those rankings. The the only Mm -hmm. people with losses on their records in those rankings are Caleb Plant, John Ryder, who might come out uh, after that loss. I don't know. And then, of course, Canelo Alvarez. So the the in terms of fantasy booking, fantasy matchups, and and looking for new young stars, this might be the exact place to look. Yeah, the depth is incredible.
2: You can throw Vladimir Shishkin into that mix as someone that belongs inside that top 10, maybe someone that people, casual fans, are not all that familiar with, but a guy certainly with some talent. Let, let's start with Jaime Munguia, who, look, is a polarizing figure in boxing because he's got a glossy record, now 43-0, after his win over John Ryder. But the criticism is he has not faced top competition up until this point. I think you could argue that John Ryder was, if not the best opponent Jaime Mungi has faced, certainly within that top two or three. Uh, Ryder, an accomplished guy, you know, probably deserved to win a super middleweight title a few years ago when he fought Callum Smith, had a phenomenal 2022 when he beat Daniel Jacobs, he beat Zach Parker, And then he goes out, fights Canelo, and look, didn't win many of those rounds, but went the distance with Canelo Alvarez in Mexico last year. He comes into that fight against Jaime McGuillan. He just gets blitzed. Like, right, you know, John Ryder had a couple of moments, but got knocked down four times. And eventually, Tony Sims in his corner just uh, decided to throw in the towel. I was really impressed with what I saw from Jaime McGuillan. I saw a fighter that looked really comfortable. In this weight class, I saw a fighter whose skills are continuing to show improvement. I saw a guy that if you can't match his punch output, you're going to have a hard time beating him. So what did you see
3: when you watched uh, the Munguia rider fight? I I saw probably the best win and the best performance of Jaime Munguia's career overall, probably. I mean, at least dating back to you know, his introduction to mm-hmm. the landscape on on HBO back in, in 2017, 2018. Uh, I saw a fighter with improved timing. I saw a fighter who was able to make some interesting technical adjustments as well. I saw him uh, bending down, fighting out of a, a, a little more of a crouch to get down to John Ryder's level, and that served him well. It also gave him a little more uh, upper body mobility, which I think uh, really helped him in this fight as well. And it's interesting, uh, going back uh, retroactively on the DAZN broadcast, uh, there was a shot of Munguia walking in and he ran into Julio Cesar Chavez Sr. And of course, they weren't mic'd up at that point. But watching what they seem to be talking about, and especially having watched the fight, you see Munguia and Chavez talking about kind of bobbing and weaving a little bit. And you see Chavez telling him, yeah, yeah, throw the right hand a lot, throw the right hand a lot. That's exactly what he went, went in there and did, which is really interesting. He had a very precise game plan with Freddie Roach uh, and some new wrinkles to his game. And listen, the flaws with Mungia are always going to be there. And Freddie Roach even admitted as much in the post-fight press conference, uh, he stopped himself short of saying, um, you know, he said that Mungia's defense improved uh since the Derry Vincheco. And at first he said, he's got now he's got good defense. And they said, well, he doesn't really have good defense. He has good offense, so that translates to good defense. And that's just the reality with Mungia that even with those improvements, there were still those moments where he was going wild, going for the finish, and he gets touched in those moments. But that's also what makes him incredibly exciting. So I think we saw some very significant changes and improvements in his game, but also you know the things that make him a little bit vulnerable and the things that make him an entertaining TV fighter.
2: Yeah, I do think he came into this fight with a better game plan than he's had in some previous fights. I thought he was more controlled, which was a point he made during the our fighter meetings, was I can't go out there and just let my hands go for 12 rounds. That's not a recipe for success, both short and long term. He does, to your point, and Sergio Mora made this point on the broadcast as well, like when he sees a guy hurt, like all strategy goes out the window. He just becomes a whirling dervish of offense, and that can lead to getting counter hit shot. And that's probably going to be something he's going to have to continue to fine tune um, as his uh, strength of his opponents uh, picks up. But I thought that was an excellent performance by by Jaime Mungu. I mean, to knock Ryder down four times, to finish Ryder off in the ninth round. Look, John Ryder's a durable guy. He's been stopped once before, but that was a controversial stoppage went 12 with Callum Smith, went 12 with Canelo Alvarez, as I said, beat a guy like Daniel Jacobs. If you can do that to a John Ryder, that tells me you are graduating uh, to, to a different level. So I think I thought that fight you know, stamped Jaime Munguia as, you know, and we can talk about the rankings, but top five, top six guy in the 168-pound division, which, as we've talked about, is a deep division. A couple of days before, Jaime Munguia fought. Uh, Eric Bazinian was in action. Eric Bazinian is not someone the casual fan is probably familiar with, but he is starting to – he is undefeated. He is starting to rack up some, you know, B-minus, B-level wins, I think you could probably call it. And he is someone that is starting to make a name for himself. So you called that fight on Thursday, uh, headlined by Eric Eric Bazinian. Um, Where do
3: you place him? Like, what – where does he fit into that super middleweight landscape? So I uh, I think that reasonably you can rank Bazinian, you know, somewhere in the in in the bottom half of the 168-pound rankings you know, if we're if we're ranking um the top guys at 168. But he holds a, a top three ranking in I I think all of the sanctioning bodies, definitely a, a top five ranking in all four sanctioning bodies. So he's kind of knocking on the door of uh, those title shots. Now, is Canelo going to pick Eric Bazinian as an opponent? Likely not. But at the same time, I mean, there is enough hope looking at uh, Canelo's track record over the years that sometimes he picks weird opponents. You know, Canelo fought Josecito Lopez. He fought Rocky Fielding. He fought John Ryder. So if you're a guy like Eric Bazinian, in your mind, do you think that there is a a potential path to that? I think more likely uh, it's Bazinian against one of those other uh, young, yet-to-be-fully-tested names at 168 pounds. And uh, Basinian is a guy who I think uh, fans, those who are uh, aware of him, had some questions about him probably over the last two years or so. He had a couple of shaky performances, uh, one in particular against Jose Macias, where he was hurt badly uh, by a journeyman who fought in basically two weight classes below him. And so there was good reason to have uh, some doubts about bazinian Now, there's been a lot going on in Basinian's personal life, the passing of his father uh, for a long time, the inability to go back to his native Armenia, because when he left Armenia to come to Canada, he had to uh, issue his mandatory uh, military service. So there's been a lot going on behind the scenes. But he really corrected the course with a knockout win over Ronald Ellis, uh, and then a nice little stay busy win against Billy Godoy uh, this past Thursday on ESPN+. Plus. Um, listen, he's not a, a splashy name, but he has a following in Montreal, and we saw with Christian and Billy, who I'm sure we'll talk about as well, uh, what that uh, marketplace can bring to the table as far as events. There's the possibility that Bazinian could get a home game against one of these other names at 168. Um and he's deserving of that. I, I think that he's probably again in the lower reaches of that weight class. You might not pick him against some of those other names, but he is a a worthy part of a young entertaining group in this weight class.
2: Yeah, he's he's a talented guy. And uh, you know, with that undefeated record, with that following in Canada he he's gonna he's gonna get an opportunity somebody's gonna tap him for one of these bigger fights i would really love to see eric bazinian in with diego pacheco i i think that is a really strong fight for both of those guys bazinian more of the boxer in that matchup pacheco becoming a big time hitter i mean he has got some some power head body all over the place um I would love to see that matchup sometime in the summer. Pacheco's going to come back on April 6th on a matchroom card. Bazzini, as you said, just fought. Uh, th- that's a great matchup. Um, and one where, you know, Bazzini, I have no idea how much money he's making for some of these fights. I would imagine it would be a, a bigger payday for him to fight uh, a Diego Pacheco uh, in the U.S. Christian Mbili, um I think a lot of people probably got a, if not a first look, a closer look at Christian Mbili just a couple of weeks ago when he fought in the co made event of the archer uh callum smith fight. Uh, Mbili fought Rohan Murdoch. Uh, Shout-out to Rohan Murdoch for hanging in there for as long as he did, because he took a beating over six rounds. Um, but, you know, I think we saw the good and the potential bad, maybe, of Christian Mbili. The good is that he is a dynamic offensive fighter. Like, he just throws small angles. He's got power. I mean, he can do... He can do some damage out there. Maybe the vulnerability is he does get hit a little bit. I mean, I know he's got a great amateur background, but, you know, if it was a higher level fighter than Rohan Murdoch, I think Mbili might have, you know, run into some problems uh, in that last fight. So you've obviously watched a lot of Christian Mbili over the years. Where do you place him in this super middleweight
3: mix? I think he's a top five, uh, 168 pounder. And again, when we're talking about By the way, just before you continue, I I think he's top three. And I had some people. Pushing back on me when
2: I I released uh, or put up the social uh, super middleweight rankings on the zone this past weekend. Obviously Canelo is number one. We're gonna get to him. David Benavidez is number two. I think Mbili is number three. And people were like, "Well, what about David Morrell?" Well, David Morrell's got like what nine ten fights on his resume. Christian Mbele has been around longer uh, and deserves to be ranked higher than David Morrell, regardless of what secondary title David Morrell's got around his waist. Yeah, I agree with that.
3: I, no, I, I agree, I, and I think that he, you know, just based on longevity and the number of wins that he's had over that caliber of opposition, yeah. is probably superior to David Morrell. And again, when we're making rankings. What I was, what I was about to say before, uh, you know, knowing that you were going to bring that up, is that mm-hmm. we're making rankings. That doesn't mean necessarily that you would pick Embilly over David Morrell. It's just looking at their resume. You know, making rankings is a combination uh, mm-hmm. of a lot of different things. But you know, yeah, what we saw with Embilly against Rohan Murdoch. Listen, that wasn't an outlier. That is how Christian and Billy fights every single time out. You're right. I've seen a lot of Christian and Billy in my lifetime. I've called a lot of Christian and Billy. That is just how he fights. And we've seen him in serious trouble before against Carlos Gongora in uh, a fantastic fight, a fight that probably had about two rounds that could have been round of the year contenders. He's been hurt badly before, and he's worked his way through that. And continued to to keep up the same punch volume. I had uh, Lou DiBella tell me that he's never seen a fighter with a motor like Christian and Billy. And listen, when you watch him Billy fight, he's throwing heat nonstop. This isn't just a pure volume puncher. This is punching with power, with volume at the same time. He's basically the perfect television fighter Uh, But he's also extremely well-schooled, and he is in a tremendous gym in Montreal uh, with with his coach, Mark Ramsey, training with Arthur Beterbiev, training with with, uh, Eric Bazinian, and a whole host of top-level amateurs uh, that are just flooding that gym right now. He's in the perfect environment and getting the right kind of buzz. That was a great introduction to the wider landscape. You, You get that kind of fight, that kind of finish, and then Tim Bradley giving him a standing ovation. Like... You get these viral clips that are building momentum for him, and, and I think that everyone should be clamoring to see more of that guy on television.
2: Yeah, he is a television-friendly fighter. No question about that. Um, So one of the things I love about this stretch is that it's almost like a game of, can you top this, right, with these super middleweights? You had Billy really impressive performance against Murdoch. Bazinian, stay busy fight, but dominates you know, Mungia dominant performance against the toughest opponent of his career. And in a couple of weeks time or a few weeks time, we're going to see Edgar Berlanga back in the ring. And I don't know if there's any more polarizing guy in the super middleweight division than Edgar Berlanga who had that long winning streak of first round knockouts. He's now on a longer streak of, of decisions um, or not longer, I guess, but a long streak for him of, uh, of decisions. Um, He's going to fight Patrick McGrory on February 24th. Now, before people criticize that fight, I'm actually fine with it. I mean, Patrick McGrory is not, again, household name, but I think he's ranked top five by one of the sanctioning bodies, and he's undefeated, and he he is another television-friendly fighter. I think he's going to come forward and make it a fight against Edgar Berlanga. So I'm fine with the matchup in and of itself. But to me, this is Edgar Berlanga's opportunity to kind of keep up with the Joneses here, to show that... He is still one of the top guys in the super middleweight division and to perhaps, you know, make the case that he should be in the mix for that Canelo Alvarez fight uh, later this year. So, you know, we've talked about the other guys at super middleweight, but
3: where do you see Berlanga kind of fitting in? Yeah, I, I think that he brings more to the table than seemingly almost anyone in that mix in terms of marketing power, uh, in terms of like the attendance that he can draw uh he's going to draw a, a lot of eyes in the United States uh in Puerto Rico like he brings a lot in in that respect to the table but I, I think he's less accomplished than most of the names that we're talking about as well and and that's okay, you know <laughs> that's I, I think that. The difficulty that guys like Berlanga run into is that they have to start saying the big names early on to get people interested, but that's probably beyond where they actually are in their development. And Jaime Munguia is a little bit of a different case, but it's somewhat similar in that when you start mentioning these big names early you set the ceiling really high for who the fan base can the types of fighters they can ask for in terms of your opponents but the reality is that for someone like Edgar Belanga you know Patrick McCrory is probably that like that's the type of level that he should be on right now if we want to find out where he's at and if we want to actually develop him as a fighter so you're you're kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth as a fighter and as someone developing these guys but that's just kind of the game that we're in and you know like going back to Mungia, and I think it relates to uh, to Berlanga in this sense too I do have some sympathy for Mungia in terms of the criticism that he's received over the years because I, I kind of liken him to um, you know and I like to use kind of analogies with the the, the music industry but with Mungia, he burst onto the scene and the first time that anyone saw him basically was on HBO winning a world title out of nowhere on three weeks notice and it's the same thing is when, you know, a musician bursts onto the scene and just has a number one single, gets a whole bunch of popularity, and then you're like, oh shit, I have to go on a tour, I have to learn how to be a live performer, I have to release an album, and so Mungia kind of bursts out of the scene and just with this youthful exuberance wins a world title, calls out Canelo, and then you have these seven years where, yeah, a Canelo fight doesn't materialize, but he's also still trying to learn and grow as a fighter. And seemingly with Mungia, plan A, B, C, and D has always just been to get a Canelo fight and everything Mm. else has been secondary. I mean, he even wrote an article for ESPN titled uh, My Journey to Defeating Canelo in 2018. He has been, it's been a single track, singular focus on Canelo and nothing outside of that uh, has mattered. So, and to tie this all together, like I have some sympathy for these guys who, have to try and uh, like build buzz. They have to say things that are going to get headlines to get attention, but it's probably a little bit beyond where they actually are in their development. So I, I could feel for Berlanga in a sense too.
2: Uh, you have a little more sympathy than I do um, because, you know, look, when Berlanga was with Top Rank, one of the constant battles that they had towards the end was getting him to agree to fight a top opponent. Remember, it was Jesse Hart, you know, Mm -hmm. about a year or so ago. Like, will he fight Jesse Hart? And and according to Top Rank, he wasn't willing to do it. Berlanga's camp has a different version of that story, but it led to a split with Top Rank because he wasn't willing to fight, you know, B or B-plus level guys. Now here we are in the second fight of his three-fight deal with Matchroom, and it has been kind of the same struggle. I mean... You know, Jason Quigley was a blown-up middleweight in his fight. Uh, And now McGrory, again, while I have no problem with the McGrory fight, he is not the kind of name opponent that I'm sure Eddie Hearn, Matchroom, want him to face. Uh, If Berlanga comes out of this fight unscathed, his next fight has to be a big fight. Um, You know, been a lot of talk about a Munguia fight. Uh, I think a Mumbili fight could be on the table, for Berlanga, I think his team is more open to that now than they were in months past. Uh, and of course, Canelo is still out there as a potential option because we don't know what Canelo is going to do. So, I mean, and let's kind of use that to transition because Canelo, it's fairly obvious Canelo is not going to fight Benavidez in May. Uh, whatever his reasons are, he is not going to do it. David Benavidez, his team have basically accepted that he's not going to do it. So, We know he's going to fight in May. We know he's going to defend his super middleweight titles in May, which, you know, leaves a limited list of potential opponents. It probably is a list that is headlined by Jaime Munguia, includes Edgar Berlanga, uh, includes, for some reason, Jamal Charlo. Uh, You know, what is, if you were Team Canelo and you were looking to make the best fight possible,
3: not named David Benavidez, who would be a top your list? I think the best fight possible of those are the three options is Jaime Munguia. Hmm. Uh, I, I think that it's the, it's it's the most intriguing fight for me, and, and and I'm giving grace to to Jamal Charlo, who of course is. You know he was battling a lot, and I don't know that this version of him, you know, without a couple of bounce back fights, presents the best version of himself. You know, middleweight that wasn't all that impressive against a blown up welterweight, against a non super middleweight.
2: Exactly, yeah. That doesn't that doesn't give anybody reason to believe that he's that Jamal is even capable of winning that fight.
3: No, so I so I think the the best fight of, of those three is Jaime Munguia. Uh, if you're Canelo, if you're like, okay, what presents a good marketing opportunity, but maybe the easiest night for me, and this is, uh, this is not me saying this, this is what what Canelo is probably thinking, then it's probably Edgar Berlanga. You do the, the Mexico versus Puerto Rico, you get a big event. You're Canelo, it makes a ton of money. It, it, it's all gravy. Um, listen, I I think that what ideally what happens now is that. Knowing that there is a log jam with the, you know, the, the biggest star in the sport holding all the titles at 168, ideally what happens is that we, we, we get kind of an informal round robin with these eight names that we're talking about fighting one another to find out who actually does deserve this fight. Because otherwise, you could be waiting around for a very long time, uh, because if Canelo fights twice a year you know, let's say all eight of these guys remain undefeated. I mean, that, that could be a four-year stretch that you're waiting for this fight on top of uh, however long you've waited already, calling out Canelo. Uh, ideally, that's what happens. But uh, yeah, for Canelo, if he has to pick those three names, I'm uh, the best fight is Munguia, but I could see why he would pick uh, Berlanga as well.
2: I, I think the best fight's Munguia, and I don't think it's even close. Mm. Um, now, maybe Berlanga changes that perception in february by going out and just blowing past um patrick mcgrory and i know there are people in his team that are probably telling him that saying like you got to go out and if you win a 12 round decision that does nothing for us you've got to go out and win this fight in three or four rounds people got to be talking about this fight as a fight of the year as a knockout of the year that's what puts you in the mix but without you know that information uh i I think you've got to go directly to munguia i don't think Mungia's stock has ever been higher them, right? I mean, he's, mm. you know, he, he's, he's starting to fight some of those BB minus B- level guys. He just blew through the guy you went the distance with, which again, is not a reflection on Canelo. I think Canelo took something out of uh, John Ryder in that fight, you know, just the punishment he inflicted against Ryder. Uh, I, I think that, you know, made him you know, a lesser fighter going into the Munguia fight, but you know, Munguia, in addition to being a really, really fun fighter, television friendly fighter, he's also a draw. And I know Berlanga is a draw, too, in New York City. But, you know, I was there in Phoenix this past weekend. There were 10,000-plus strong. These were all Jaime Munguia fans. Like, these were, I think, for the most part, paying customers to go see Jaime Munguia. So if you want to do a big fight in Vegas or if you even want to go back to Texas where Canelo once put 70,000 people inside AT&T Stadium, the guy to fight is Jaime Munguia. Now, it, some of it's going to come down – whether or not Canelo wants to do business with Oscar De La Hoya, that's just a fact, right? Like Oscar promotes or co-promotes Canelo, he's going to be involved in that fight. We all know about the bad blood between those two. But if Canelo is looking at his career and looking at what is the best bang for my buck, where can I make the most money, be in the most entertaining fight, and be a favorite in that fight? Look, Munguia, we, we put you know threw flowers at him for the last twenty minutes or so, but going to a Canelo fight, he would be an underdog because oh, yeah. it's one thing to walk into counter shots from John Ryder. It's quite the other to walk into a counter shot from Canelo Alvarez. This has always been my argument about Benavidez, who I think is a great fighter too, but you don't know what you are until you get hit by a shot you don't even see coming from one of the biggest punchers in in and around these weight classes. So I would make Canelo a big favorite in that fight. I just think it makes it makes too much sense. If they can put, uh, you know, Personal animus aside with Canelo and Oscar De la Hoya. And look, network promotional animus. I mean, right now, Canelo is still tied to PBC. This is going to be the second fight of his PBC deal. I don't know where that stands, quite frankly, because when Canelo signed that deal, PBC had a deal with Showtime. Now it's with Amazon. Are the guaranteed, is the guaranteed money still there for Canelo Alvarez? That, I, I don't know. But if it turns out it needs to be a PBC golden boy co-promotion, a Amazon DAZN co-broadcast, uh, that makes it difficult in and of itself. But uh, to me, it, it's pretty clear that this is the guy. If Benavides is not the guy, Jaime Munguia is the guy.
3: Yeah. And it, it's, I think that sometimes people underestimate how much of a draw Munguia is because you're right. I mean, the that place was electric in Phoenix yeah. during the Dury-Vinchenko fight. I mean, I remember having to turn my headphones up so that we could hear each other or whatnot. It is like, he has a fan base and he is drawn in Arizona. He's drawn in Phoenix. Uh, sorry. He's, he's drawn in Texas. He's drawn in Mexico. Um, his LA. fans will he's move drawn, around in the Honda center in LA, in, in the Honda He's drawn in, in LA. There. And I think that his fans are specific to him too, because I, I recall there being moments at those fights, you know, where the name Canelo was mentioned. His fans are excited about him facing Canelo. Obviously Canelo has more fans, but he'll bring a fan base to that fight a, as well. Um, Listen, I, I, it would be an electric atmosphere if they can make that happen. And the the hope is that, you know, the the network complications will certainly be a big hurdle if indeed, you know, Canelo is beholden to, to Amazon as well. The hope is that the understandable animus that is there between Canelo and Golden Boy, and I'm sure, you know, Canelo. Uh, there's the the main part of his brain is saying, I don't want to help make money for Oscar De La Hoya right now. If he could flip that and say, I want to knock off his, one of his three biggest stars. Mm. and If he could turn that animus into, into motivation, then perhaps we get a fight. And and that's really the, the seemingly the, the switch that has to flip for Canelo to get this done.
2: Yeah. And look, he could look at it and say, I I need help marketing, you know, this fight, my, you know, disdain for Oscar could help do that. You know, a press tour where it's Oscar on one side, me on the other. You know, it's going to get spicy at some point. Oscar will give an interview, say Canelo's, yeah, he's he's top 10 Mexican fighter all time or something to that effect. So it, it could definitely be interesting there. Before I let you go, I, I have to, we have to address the guy that I think is the future of super middleweight, which is Diego Pacheco. Um, this kid's legit. Every Everyone I talk to, that has nothing to do with Diego Pacheco. This is why I always say I'm always high on this guy because there are people in boxing that have zero to do with them, no investment whatsoever, that constantly tell me this guy's the real deal. Like, this guy is a terror. Um, he returns on April 6th. He continues to climb the rankings. Top five, I think, in three out of four, all four. I mean, he's right up there in, in the super middleweight rankings. I'll put it this way, Corey. If I was buying stock in one of these super middleweights over the next five years it would probably be Diego Pacheco because I think he's really, really, really good now. And I think in the next six to 12 months, we could be talking about him as great, as being a guy that, you know, at some point could be on the pound for pound list. That's how high I am on
3: Diego Pacheco. How do you see him? I'm right there with you. I think that, especially in 2023, I don't think there was a fighter who took... Um, a more obvious step from prospect to contender mm-hmm. than Diego Pacheco in that year, and you know, at the beginning of the year, you know, I I was probably along with a lot of people thinking, okay, he needs a few more development fights. He's he's a young kid. He's growing into his body. Uh, let's give it some time. By the end of the year, I you know, I'm fantasy booking him against all these other 168 pounders. I, I think mm-hmm. that um, he is. Uh, he's putting everything together. It's not just his his natural power. It's how he sets it up. Uh, but he has different tools. He has different ways that he can win a fight. Um, and he just... He has a nastiness, a mean streak in the ring now that I didn't necessarily see out of him when he was younger. I think that with that maturity has come a confidence that is aiding him as a pure puncher. It's the kind of mentality that I think you need if you want to be uh, the big bomber that he seems to be and and wants to be as a fighter. Um, You know, yeah, if I'm buying stock, I'm buying stock in him. And in terms of just pure excitement... Again, like going back to all these exciting names at 168, really, it's it's Pacheco and Mbili for me in terms of just raw, pure television excitement. It's, it's those two names at the top of the list for me. I would love
2: to see footage, if it exists, of Diego Pacheco and David Benavidez sparring. Yeah. They're both up <laughs> yeah. there in the Seattle area, trained by Jose Benavidez Sr. Those must be good sparring sessions. And I'm guessing they do it a lot because, you know, who, who wouldn't who, – is there a better sparring partner than, you know, one of the top guys in your weight class? Uh, Pacheco just had a Munguia-esque win in his last fight. You know, Marcelo Coseras, never been a world champion, but went the distance with Berlanga. Tough guy, fought at a pretty high level, and Munguia did a job on him. Like, you know, effectively, Coseras said no mas at the end of that fight because he was taking – you know, such a beating. Uh, I agree with you. I mean, he made a jump in 2023. He was still my prospect of the year because, hell, he's 22 years old or whatever he is. He's still sure, yeah. technically a prospect, but he's <laughs> top five in all these rankings, and I think he's going to be a big-time problem. He's the guy, when you talk about putting in, putting guys in with with, with bigger name fighters. he's the guy I want to see, whether it's, Mbili, if they can make that fight happen, which they, you know, they could like, they're not, these politics are not blocking a Pacheco and Mbili fight from happening. Same thing with Eric Bazinian. Like those are the guys, if I'm Eddie Hearn, I'm targeting for the summer of 2024. I want him in with another undefeated top 10 opponent that would give him kind of the bona fides to call out a Canelo or a Benavidez or somebody, not Benavidez, obviously they're not going to do that. But in 2025, to be able to call out one of those big names at the 160, 168, maybe 175 pound division. He needs that guy on his resume. And I think Matram's going to do everything he can to, to ultimately uh, make it happen. All right, Corey, good stuff, man. Appreciate your time. And uh, with our apologies to Vladimir Shishkin, we will address your talents on the follow-up episode of the Super Middleweight Podcast later in the year. That's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Corey Erdman for joining the show. As always, subscribe, rate, review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you download podcasts. And I will see you later on this week.
0: I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a podcast. podcast.